My name is Dario Hasenstab. I have two degrees in international affairs, and I'm here with Balder Hagritz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze a writer for The Guardian called Simon Tisdell as an example for Western bubble thinking. Because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Hi, Balder. Um, why are we speaking about this topic today? And more importantly, why are we speaking about yet another individual? Hello, Dario. We have been speaking about quite a few individuals by now. We had an episode on Elon Musk. We had one about last week about Jordan Peterson. Um, we've discussed some academics, uh, Francis Fukuyama, Samuel Huntington. And we do this because the Western bubble is one that is made up of human beings. Uh, it is too easy to think of the problems in international relations as problems that occur because of some dark anonymous group of Illuminati ruling the world or some mm, politicians you don't agree with messing, messing it all up for everyone else. That is not what the Western bubble is about the Western bubble is about you, me, our listeners, and the people that we discuss in the episodes um, as agents of that bubble, and that together as a whole, as a collective, create this kind of delusion that we're all susceptible to. And so by picking out individuals, it's not about ad hominem attacks, it's not about going after them personally, we don't know them personally, we've got nothing against them personally, but it is about pointing out that these human beings are examples of where it goes wrong in Western society. And why are we talking about uh, him in particular? He is maybe not as um, well known as Jordan Peterson or Elon Musk, but he is a very typical example of how journalists within the West are intuitively driven by biases and find it very difficult to properly analyze international relations and the role of the West within international relations. So they are driven by this Western bubble mentality of moral superiority, of um, democratic whitewashing, if you like, and there is actually very uh, little proper analysis behind that. And that's is not just the case with Simon Tistel, but with many other journalists and columnists and commentators as well. He is just a very clear example of those. And for transparency reasons, we can disclose that once in a while we will send each other an article of him and then just get really angry um, about what he writes uh, all day long. Also because the patterns are so clear, right? All over and over again, he writes these things that we're going to discuss today. So we, we had to pick a few, but there are many, many examples of what we're mentioning today. And what are the facts? Simon Tisdell is a foreign affairs commentator. He has been a foreign leader writer, foreign editor and US editor for The Guardian. Tisdell was born in Manchester and studied history, politics and philosophy at Downing College in Cambridge. He joined The Guardian in 1979 and became the newspaper's U.S. editor and White House correspondent from 1989 to 1994. Since then, he has held multiple positions within the newspaper and published over 2,000 articles. Currently, he's writing for the Observer section of The Guardian and commenting on foreign affairs. What is the bubble? 
So let's talk about the bubble that Simon Tisdall is in. Um, where do we start? Because based on his articles, I think he is the prime example of what bubble thinking can lead to. Absolutely. It is uh, a type of thinking that is based on moral intuition, on sort of more moral certainties um, that then drive how he observes the world around him and how he tries to analyze it. But the analysis actually gets lost within the moral outrage and the moral belief system that um, he is part of. Uh, article after article is full of flawed analysis where you don't actually see any real connection with the world that's beyond the Western bubble, but that very much reaffirms continuously how we in the West perceive ourselves, how we are the good guys, how we are those who have the magic formula, how we are the ones that are democratic and free and therefore inherently better than everyone else. And that allows us then to lash out against Xi Jinping and uh, Vladimir Putin and Iran and any other regime that is different than, uh, than us uh, without any proper analysis to back that up. And here he is simply a representative for that typical Western bubble columnist who writes for newspapers with flawed analysis and with, as we would say, he has lost touch to reality. Yeah, the, 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 there's actually very little value, analytical value in what he writes. Um, it, it is basically just a reaffirmation of his emotional state of mind. It is an, an R of the reader's emotional state of mind. It, it is reaffirming that um, we are the good guys fighting the bad guys in Ukraine. It is reaffirming that we are opposing evil authoritarianism, authoritarianism from China. It is reaffirming that even though we may have flaws and that we've made mistakes in the past with Iraq or with Vietnam or something like that, uh, we are still the necessary police force to keep the rest of the world under control. And so he is exemplary of a lot of the patterns that we have discussed in our episode on the media. So we're not going to repeat them. Um, and we we'll rather focus on some of the patterns, Western bubble thinking patterns that he is, I think you can say, almost obsessed with. And the first one here is a declining global order. Is that the global order as we know it, Western dominated, based around the United Nations and democracy, um, that it's declining and is being challenged by the evil people of this world, namely Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. Right, and that's, that first bit, of course, is absolutely true. Uh, the world order that was established by the West after the Second World War um, with the United Nations and transnational organizations dominated by Europe and North America with a bit of support from Japan and some others is absolutely on the way out, or at the very least has lost a lot of its power, a lot of its potency. There's absolutely no doubt about that. So there, that decline in that kind of order is observable, is there, he's absolutely correct. The strange thing is, though, that rather than analyzing how can that be, what are the reasons behind it, and then coming to an obvious conclusion that mainly that global world order actually wasn't very global, it was a mechanism from the West to 
control, if you like, the rest of the world and push the rest of the world towards Western values, and that no longer works because the West no longer has the power, his analysis, his conclusion is, oh, this is a disaster. We have to go back to that world order. We have to go back to the 20th century where, where the West ruled the roost and where we could actually police those evildoers around us, which is, of course, um, not just silly, it is also very destructive thinking because it leads to exactly all the problems that we have observed over the past 25 or 30 years. And this is another element of it. Uh, so it's what you said in, in your second to last sentence, um, us versus them, good versus evil. That is a very prominent aspect of the Western bubble in general. And I mean, let's be honest, it's very human. Uh, it's easy to think in us versus them. And then it would be convenient uh, to say both that us is good and, and the others are, are evil. Um, and he's applying that in his analysis as well, especially when it comes to the declining um, global order, is that it's us who respect the democratic global order. And then there's them who are trying to undermine it because why, why he never really says. Um, I, there's, there's just an, an element of evil. Yes, instead of saying, well, yeah, we we respect the order that we created to push for our agenda. <laughs> That's quite a good reason to respect that order. And others who do not form part of that agenda and who were not there at the foundation of that order feel uncomfortable with it and rightfully, understandably so. Obviously, any serious analysis would lead to that conclusion. He doesn't want to go there because he wants to stay in that us versus them mentality. And you're absolutely right. It's a very powerful psychological mechanism, right? Insider, outsider models. Um, we define ourselves not just by who we are in positive terms, but also by who we are not in negative terms. We do this on a daily basis in our own private lives, and we do this as a society. And the West is incredibly blinded by this kind of thinking of this. We are everything that is good about humanity and they are everything that's wrong about humanity. Uh, and, and, and he's a prime example. His analysis, his, his thinking, his writing is a prime example of this. And so when criticizing this us versus them, good versus evil, um, we do not want the impression to come up that we are apologizing or explaining any of the, any of the negative be, well, behaviors of, of other world leaders. Uh, so when we're criticizing the West, uh, that does not mean that we are excusing what, let's say, Vladimir Putin is doing in Ukraine. Um, just for later on the podcast, we will be going down that road and we do not want um, anyone to think that by simply criticizing the West, we are apologizing for the rest. But that is one of those things that's always very difficult. And So I don't know how many episodes we've recorded by now, Dario, but I always feel the need to point this out. We are two Western boys, you know, we, we are children of the West and it really shouldn't be much of our business to criticize people outside of our own society. There's plenty to do within our society. And that is the reason why we have this podcast, not to argue that China is amazing or that Russia is amazing, whether China or Russia are amazing or evil is not really any of our business. What we need to do is look self-critically at our own society and see how we can strengthen that society and let the Chinese and the Russians deal with their society. Exactly. Um, and, well, applying this to, to Simon Tisdall, uh, he's not an evil person. 
he just has flawed analysis uh, that we happen to disagree with. And the last uh, uh, very intense aspect of his bubble thinking is this unquestioned Western ideal, you know, that moral nature that the West upholds and those natural rights that the West perceives are there. That is a very intense aspect of, of his thinking and his argumentation. Yeah, so that is part of this key of the Western bubble, this idea that we somehow have developed something that doesn't only work for us internally as a society, but that objectively is the gold standard for moral behavior worldwide. And that means that automatically anyone who doesn't fulfill our criteria of how you should behave is on the dark side of history, is on the wrong side of history. That only works if you believe in the objective moral superiority of the Western model. And I think that it is increasingly difficult to actually defend that objectivity. You can say, look, it uh, the political system works for Germany, it works for Spain, it works for the United States, up to a certain point, by the way. Um, but that doesn't mean that the Chinese and the Indians and the South Africans also need to copy that model automatically. And yet that is the inherent assumption behind all of this. So when we're talking about uh, the damage, so I don't think Simon Tistel is hurting anyone directly with his articles. Um, I don't think there's a, a I, at least I hope not, that there's any, that there are any real life uh, implications to his writing. Well, no, not directly in that sense, but he does add to this cacophony of voices that create an environment in which really bad foreign policy can take place. So he himself you know, is not responsible for the death of anyone. He's not himself is not responsible for any direct destruction. But with all these Western voices, all these media personalities contributing to this bubble thinking, it's much easier and sometimes even politically necessary for leadership to take really bad decisions. Um, so he does soften the ground in that sense. And these dynamics are subtle. They're not easy to put your finger on, but it is clear that people like Tistol do a lot of indirect damage in that sense. And can you explain to our listeners what is the problem? And the way that they're doing this indirect damage is through uh, articles and through opinion pieces, um, well, for, for, for him mostly. And this is what we're going to analyze in, uh, in, in, this, in this part is let's, let's look at the damaging articles that he has written and in what way uh, they're damaging. And um, I invite the listeners uh, to, to, to go visit The Guardian and, uh, and click, on, click on Simon Tisdell's uh, profile and you will see all the 2,100, I think at right now 50 something articles um, and just click through them and see whether you can identify that Western bubble thinking that we have been, uh, we've been talking about for now 44 episodes. Um, and we did the same, and we have uh, we are outlining uh, five articles here uh, that he's talking about. But we will quickly quote them um, and then put things into into perspective through the Western bubble lens. Um, and the first one uh, we would like to, to to analyze is called China, Myanmar, and now Darfur. The horror of genocide is here again. And that article was uh, published on July second, uh, twenty twenty three. Um, so about three weeks ago, and. I have a problem with this article for different reasons, which are also part of the Western bubble. 
so I mean, as, as we've talked about in the past, uh, I work for for a think tank called uh, called Raya Now, and um, there one of the main things that we talk about at the beginning before people start analyzing is please do not use these conflated terms. Please do not conflate them yourselves. And one of these terms is genocide because genocide is very difficult to pin down. So it is defined in a convention by the United Nations. However, when you throw together China, Myanmar, and Sudan, you're creating a dangerous, like a, a dangerous sense of what the word means. Um, and so, so Tistel himself uh, talks about the differences between China, Myanmar, and Darfur. So in China, you have uh, the Chinese government um, well, uh, oppressing and imprisoning um, the, the Uyghur uh, well, nationality, ethnicity in the Xinjiang uh, region. And they're doing this through, uh, and this is already one of those terms that I really don't like, through concentration camps, as it's always called in the media. And when you use the term concentration camp, people immediately start thinking about the concentration camps of 1933 Germany. Um, and that is, a, that is a death camp. However, these concentration camps are re-education camps where unconfirmed different processes are taking place, sterilization and well, re-education according to Chinese uh, ideals. And that is one of those already difficult terms, you know, where is that a genocide? Can you put that together with Myanmar, where, um, where the Rohingya, uh, well, uh, another ethnic group in Myanmar, was uh, basically well, forced out of the country, villages were burned down, um, people were killed. Can you compare those two things? And then now he's throwing Darfur in there. And I mean, Darfur is, is Sudan, um, so that's a, that's a lot closer to, to what you're talking about. And there we, for now a few months, have seen well, the government, the central government fighting against uh, an, an, an army faction. And there's conflict going on. And he's comparing this to the 2003 situation in Sudan, where actually 300,000 people were killed in, yes, and that you can definitely call a genocide. Yes, and the mechanism here is is very problematic, right? Because what what happens is the moment you use the words genocide and the, the moment you use the word concentration camp, it becomes almost automatically a black and white issue, good versus evil. And that means that you no longer have any analysis to do. That means that there is no, it's just a moral imperative to take whatever action required. Uh, Genocide happens, the global community needs to intervene. Of course, in reality, um, these situations are complex. They're also internal within a Westphalian system, which, like it or not, is the reality that, that, we, that we live under. And it is not Nazi Germany. It is not the 1930s or 1940s. Um, with the extermination, the, the murder of 6 million people or more. And so by equating those to very different situations, you turn it into a simplistic issue where if you're not on Tistal's side, you are on the side of the genocidal maniacs. In reality, Xi Jinping is not a genocidal maniac. Um, and in reality, what's happening in Sudan right now is certainly not genocide right now. Um, Myanmar is very complex. That doesn't mean in any way that I or you are morally um, okay with these things that are happening. 
but we have to be very careful in this simplification. And he he is he's simplifying it to an extreme extent where I would even call this a weaponization of the term. Um, because you, you're trying to create a sentiment for the international, or in this case, let's be honest, the Western community to intervene. Um, and then, well, let's let's actually just jump right into the article uh, because I think there there's a, there's a quote which particularly outlines this. Um, and it reads, quote, why, for example, is Syria's dictator, Bashar al-Assad, not prosecuted for attempted genocide of Kurdish and Sunni groups under the terms of the 1948 convention? End quote. The, the, the answer for any serious analyst is obvious, because we don't have a global system that allows that kind of thing. Um, for the same reason why there is no um, ICC investigation into... George W. Bush or Tony Blair. Uh, George W. Bush is, was president of a country that isn't even signed up to the ICC, um, or at least hasn't ratified the ICC. Uh, Tony Blair is. But there is absolutely no way for the global community to take a leader and to put them in front of a judge and to try them for anything they do. That mechanism just doesn't exist in our world. And you cannot actually even desire such a mechanism without explaining how that would actually work. Who decides who gets arrested? Who decides who gets uh, put in front of that uh, court? The ICC works on a essentially voluntary basis for a country to join. And once you join and you cooperate, then the ICC takes over. But if you don't sign or ratify the Rome Statute, then you never become part of the ICC. And then obviously there is nothing to do. Exactly. There's nothing to do. Um, and again, in line with with, uh, with what I just talked about before, conflating China, Myanmar and Sudan, here you're throwing in Syria um, for an attempted genocide of the Kurdish and Sunni groups. Again, it's a, Syria is an incredibly complex situation with a civil war uh, still taking place, where is that a genocide, is that not a genocide, is an incredibly difficult question to answer. Um, but he throws in, oh, it's an attempted genocide, and this man needs to be needs to be prosecuted. Uh, it's dangerous. What's 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 fascinating is that Tistel doesn't even really want to try him; he just wants to punish him. So it's you know he already puts himself in the in the position of judge. It's not even about let's investigate whether Assad would be could be held accountable for something that I call genocide. No, no, it's basically, hey, I've made up my mind. Assad is a bad guy. We all know it because he's not us. So let's put him in front of the ICC and let's throw him in jail for as long as possible. The frustrating thing about these kinds of conversations is that when you, when you point this out, when you point out the lack of logic in this kind of writing, is that people very quickly say, but Balder or Dario... Um, you're just letting horrible people get away with horrible things. Um, you're okay with this happening in Syria, or you're okay with this happening in China or Myanmar. And the answer to that is, of course, no, I'm not necessarily okay, depending on which situation. Some situations I just find way too complex to have a moral perspective on. Other situations seem morally clearer. But whether I'm okay with it or not is not relevant 
What is relevant is what kind of international system do we live in? And is there a just, proper, righteous way to go about punishing perpetrators of crimes or not? And clearly a Guardian columnist just being basically judge and jury on these matters is not the source of justice, the source of morality that can work at a global level. You need a system that we haven't discovered yet, that we haven't invented yet. And as long as we don't have an objectively verifiable, well-functioning global system for these kinds of things, then it is better to be modest in your moral outrage and not to try to be judge and jury at the same time. Talking about being judge and jury at the same time, um, in the next article, uh, he's calling for NATO to be judge, jury and executor uh, all at the same time. Um, and this one is, is even more recent. Uh, this one's from July 8th, 2023. Um, and so the title is, Defeat for Ukraine would be a global disaster. NATO must finally step, step in to stop Russia. End. And the title itself, so this is one of those titles uh, and one of those articles that we sent to each other and then just flat out hit our foreheads with our hands because wow, wow on so many levels. And um, and then the content of it is even worse. Yeah, it, it's, it's one of many articles that Pistol has written about, um, about the Ukraine situation. And very few of them actually provide any interesting insight. Um, they're mostly one rallying of rallying the Western troops against the evil Russians. They're mostly focused on essentially saying this is a war of good versus evil. Um, the West needs to do everything in their power, including at some point he seems to suggest NATO military intervention uh, to stop the, the hordes of Mordor, if I can put in a Lord of the Rings reference here, uh, from, from flooding the free, happy Western world. And the problem here is, of course, not whether Russia are the good or the bad guys. Russia is absolutely responsible and horribly so for starting this voluntary war. I always feel the need to point this out before people say that we're Putin apologists and I think that I speak for both of us that we both hope that uh, Ukraine will kick the Russians out of their territory. However, um, this continuous tone of making it sound as if we, the West, are responsible for uh, showing everything that is good about ourselves and fighting everything that is dark and evil on the other side in China, in Russia is of course incredibly destructive because it means that we cannot talk about actual solutions. It means that we simplify the enemy. We simplify the Russians into essentially a irredeemable group of barbarians who can only be stopped with violence. It means that we no longer look at the realities in Ukraine. It means that we live in a fairy tale world and that is not a basis for proper policymaking. And he does this in the following way. And now I'm going to quote from the article. And the gloating Putin and his gang escaping justice would be free to do it all again there or somewhere else. End quote. Basically calling for NATO to, hey, in intervene now. Otherwise, a gloating Putin and his gang would escape justice and they would tomorrow invade Poland. 
Yes, and this is this is the narrative that, understandably, by the way, Kiev likes to uh, put out. Right, Zelensky with his tweets, uh, Ukrainian president puts this out continuously, this idea that Ukraine is fighting on behalf of the West, is defending the West from evil Russian aggression. Now, I understand why Ukraine wants this, because of course Ukraine wants all the resources they can get to fight the Russians. I understand the thinking there, I, I don't blame them for that at all. I would do the same if I were Ukrainian. However, let's take a step back. Uh, there is absolutely no scenario in foreign policy, we work often with scenarios, there is no serious scenario where even if, let's say at the end of the summer, Russia somehow has this miraculous victory um, and, 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 and manages to somehow annex Ukraine, which, by the way, will not happen. Even if that were to happen, does anyone seriously think that Putin then thinks, OK, this was such a great success, Warsaw is the next stop, and then Berlin, and then we'll get to Madrid, and then we'll cross the Atlantic towards Washington. I mean, there is just no serious scenario that in which Russia, even if they were to win this war, would be an actual threat to NATO in any shape or form. It's just not happening. Of course, if you read Tistel's work, you would believe that we're one step away from being from all being forced to speak Russian. And the main way for the West to avoid having to speak Russian uh, is obviously NATO. And um, there was talk at the very beginning of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So this was in early 2022 uh, of creating a no-fly zone over, over Ukraine. Um, and then very quickly, luckily, very quickly, uh, some experts came out and said, well, if we... If we create a no-fly zone over Ukraine and we shoot down a Russian airplane, that means we are at war with Russia. That means NATO is fighting Russia and both have nuclear nuclear weapons. Uh, so that wouldn't be good. And then for the longest time, um, this was rather quiet. And Tistel um, even quotes an, quotes an expert, a former U.S. Uh, NATO NATO commander, who's saying exactly this: um, oh, "We can't create a we, we can't really step in because that would that would mean war." But then Tistel creates a scenario or is trying to use precedent to to show us a way of how NATO could actually intervene in, in Ukraine. And I quote, But they are precedents. West Germany gained NATO protection in 1955, even though, like Ukraine, it was in dispute over occupied sovereign territory held by East Germany's held by East Germany, a Soviet puppet. In similar fashion, NATO's defensive umbrella could, reason, could reasonably be extended to cover the roughly 85% of Ukrainian territory Kiev currently controls, end quote. I, I don't know where to start with this. Um, you as a German, I, mean, I may have missed something about German history, but I wasn't aware that there was active war happening in Berlin in 1955 with the Soviets and the Americans fighting it out over who controls what. This, this, this comparison is so insanely, weirdly off that, I mean, it, it's typical of Tistel, but that it, it, it's hard almost to take it seriously, right? I, the idea that you can compare Ukraine in, nine, in 2023 in a full-blown war in a full-blown defense of their territory against the aggressor, against Moscow, against Russia, that you can compare that to the 
very tense diplomatic standoff in 1955 around Berlin and East Germany is, of course, complete insanity. Uh, the idea that the fact that West Germany could enter NATO in a, in a situation, by the way, where also Russia was creating the, has created the Warsaw Pact. So, uh, you know, a situation where you basically had a standoff between two power blocks that that can be compared to Ukraine entering NATO in 2023. It is unfortunately very, very typical of the way that Tistel writes. He throws some weird facts out there that somehow intuitively feel good, but anyone with any knowledge and any time to think about it will actually throw these kinds of words into the bin because it has absolutely no real value. And then the next part, and this is the this is this is what I what I find the funniest actually, um, to cover the roughly eighty five percent of Ukrainian territory. Uh, so so where do we draw the line? Um, is it is it the line? Is it the map that we see every day in the news with like these gray areas and, and red areas, and then there's a conflict line, and basically that's the moment that NATO would intervene. This I don't know. This man has been writing about foreign policy for for forty years, but it seems like he just started yesterday. I wonder how that would even work. Like the, the, the Ukrainian soldiers, they come back from the front and they go and have lunch within the safe 85% NATO-protected areas and then they go back to the front. Yeah, that's going to work well. But this is very... It's funny, but it's also very scary, right? Because this is a columnist who obviously has a huge platform. The Guardian is one of the most read newspapers in certainly the English-speaking world. And he just throws these facts, uh, we should use them in quotation mark, the word, these facts out there as if they somehow support his argument when they really do not, when they are completely misguided. And yet people who don't think about this, they read this and they get reinforced in their bubble thinking. They say, oh yes, there is no problem with Ukraine joining NATO because 1955 Germany. Um, that is the damage that gets that that occurs here, right? So people without the knowledge to actually assess it, because they've got other things to do in their lives, they read this and think, oh yeah, obviously, obviously this needs to happen. It 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 is rhetoric of the scariest kind without any proper analytical backup. And on March fifth, uh, he published another one of of these NATO needs to fight Russia articles, and it is titled. NATO faces an all-out fight with Putin. It must stop pulling its punches. And I, I here I'm just going to start with a quote because it speaks for itself. I, I almost think we don't even need to comment on it anymore. Um, quote, Putin is mobilizing Russian society for a second great patriotic war. He's going all out. French ifs, German buts, and American maybes are increasingly unaffordable. This is a fight the West cannot afford to lose but cannot hope to win while a chronically reactive NATO, unsure of its purpose and aims, pulls its punches and lets Putin set the pace, end quote. Yeah, um, it, it very much is, again, that, that tone of we're in an existential crisis of good versus evil, and everyone who tries to look for complexity is somehow on the wrong side of history. This is no time for complexity. It is for simple, hardcore action against this great patriotic war that apparently in Russian society um, Putin is mobilizing. The, 
the scary thing about this is that it really leaves very little nuance and it's a nuanced complex world and there is no there is no easy answer to a situation like this and to for example argue that nato is pulling its punches after the way that it has been supporting ukraine is of course completely misguided once again nato hasn't been pulling its punches the only thing that nato doesn't want to do is go to war with russia obviously because we don't want to die in a nuclear explosion and here so all of this sounds like good versus evil us versus the rest us versus russia um and it it kind of reads like okay somebody needs to put putin the thug into his place which uh, sounds a lot like that global policeman uh, that we often talk about. And surprise, surprise, on March 26, uh, Tistel published an article called The World Still Needs a Policeman. Let's Hope the US Doesn't Quit the Job. Um, which actually, uh, this article, there are so many things in every single paragraph that are wrong and that are so outrageous to anyone who has ever looked at an international relations book that here we're only going to read uh, the summary uh, summary paragraph and we will actually analyze the most of the article almost word by word in an extra episode uh, that we will publish soon um, but for now uh, let's let's look at the summary of this article and it and it reads America's record at keeping global order is deeply flawed but the only winners from its drift towards isolationism will be Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, end quote. First of all, the idea that um, the United States has a choice in this, the United States would have loved to keep the old order, but they can't anymore because the rest of the world is just catching up. Let's, let's be clear about that. It's not that the United States said one day, okay, we don't really care anymore about controlling the world. Um, you know, it's, it's okay, let others do it. It's just that the world is changing and the West is losing its position, not as a choice, but because that's the reality of our globe in 2023. Um, and then this idea that automatically um, the winners will be Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin and that that means that somehow we would rather have the United States desperately clinging on to power as if it were still the 1990s is of course incredibly destructive and scary but but what is what it does to readers and what it does to the Western bubble is it pushes the right buttons because it once again creates this us versus them we are the good guys. We have been going a little bit too easy lately, or the United States has been a little bit too easy. They need to be more proactive now again. Um, and that emotionally feels right to a lot of readers. Why? Because you think of yourself, every human being or almost every human being on this planet thinks of themselves as the good guys. And they think, oh, yeah, 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 no, um, this is it is up to us to make sure that everyone else behaves. So let is, let's make sure that the United States... Uh, fulfills its role in that sense. I, I I don't know where to start with that analytically, but emotionally, it's clear that a lot of people find that appealing. Um, which which is interesting because um, th this is a very hawkish perspective, you know, a very military friendly perspective, which people find well, I would say found appealing, especially uh, in the United States. I mean, I think the West in general has has grown tired of its wars um well until maybe a year ago and 
theoretically, uh, Simon Tisdale is supposed to be, well, well, I assume he is, and he thinks of himself as it, center-left, because he's also writing for The Guardian, a center-left uh, newspaper. Yes, and w one of the reasons why uh, people are tired of it is that they have been incredibly destructive, these wars of the West. So the, 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 the wars... Uh, that people are tired of are if, if they had been successful overthrows of some authoritarian regimes and successful establishments of western type democratic societies around the globe people wouldn't be tired of them they would be all raving about it and saying great let's do this more let's do this more but the reason why people are getting fed up with this is not a lack of um moral superiority that the West has, but a lack of success. The West has not been able to fulfill its agenda. And, and that is, well, it's not funny, but it's funny how the, well, I would say the West in general is feeling this way. And um, that's the reason why I think the West has become, or well, at least the sentiment within the West had become less hawkish, uh, because you have exactly, you have exactly this, all these terrible, terrible consequences of the West being that global policeman. And now we get to the funny part. Simon Tistel acknowledges that himself. So the, the one we just talked about, the article, the world still needs a policeman, let's hope the US doesn't quit the job, was from March 26th. Only two months later, Simon Tistel publishes an article which theoretically would undermine all of that he said, right? Because the title is the Uncounted, How Millions Died Unseen in America's Post-9-11 Wars. So you would expect that, okay, yeah, you have, you have made your analysis, you've come to the conclusion that America as a global policeman is incredibly destructive, so maybe we should stop. But it, it, that connection doesn't seem to happen because the evil powers of this world are a worse alternative. Yes, yeah, so this... this article is in the context of the war on terror, uh, the, all the foreign policy actions that the United States did after 9-11. And the, the thesis, I think, if I try to summarize what Tistel wants to say or wants to do is say, there is a lot of destruction that the United States and their Western allies are responsible for. That is horrible, and we need to repair the damage. We need to undo the destruction that we caused. But it is still preferable to evil Xi Jinping taking over the world. And let me once again point out here that China has not invaded any country over in, in modern history. China has not, uh, in the 21st century, been in any way responsible for any of the military violence that the West is responsible for. The idea that automatically, simply because we don't like his authoritarian internal regime, um, simply because we don't like the way he speaks about the West, that horrible destruction of the United States as police force is obviously better then the unknown consequences of Chinese dominance shows exactly the blindness with which someone like Tistel writes about these issues. Because talking about the destruction, I mean, the report mentions that there were 4.5 million indirect uh, deaths following uh, the American war on terror. Um, and I, I think that would be the clearest indicator, right? Is, oh, we, we, we had a war on terror here. Um, we, we tried our best uh, to fight terrorism, whatever that means. 
Um, however, 4.5 million people died uh, as a result of it. So maybe we should stop doing this. Yes, it is on top of what we've often pointed out with the Iraq war, half a million civilians dying uh, specifically within Iraq. Uh, not even mentioning all the economic hardship and all the, the the societal and political destruction that has taken place. These numbers are astounding of the damage that the West has caused. And then to say, well, that incredible destruction somehow is still preferable to a scenario that I can't even explain because I don't know what it would look like if China were to dominate the world. China will never dominate the world in the way that the West has dominated the world. But let's say that they were. We don't even know what it looks like. But that unknown is worse than millions and millions of people dying and millions and millions of people being displaced. That requires some mental gymnastics. That requires some pretty horrible blindness towards your own bubble. And it can only be justified by the idea that inherently the West somehow is just good, is just better than the others. And what now? So let's look into the future. Um, Tisdale is a good example of why we, why the West messes things up, um, especially in foreign policy. So what do we do? Um, do we no longer read his articles um, and, and then the, the West is going to have better foreign policy making? Well, we've just encouraged our listeners to click on his link. So actually, we're having a counterproductive impact here, I guess. But that's a welcome to the world of the Internet. Um, now, the, the issue is not Tistel in itself, right? Again, you've pointed this out before. Personally, I'm sure that he's a lovely person to have a drink with. Uh, this is about the tone and the type of analysis that we feel comfortable with when it comes to ourselves and our relationship with the rest of the world. And we've gotten way too comfortable with a world in which, with a, a narrative about our world in which we uh, just hit certain emotional buttons like authoritarian regime, evil, throw words like genocide or concentration camps in there. And we are not actually analyzing the complexity of that. that analyzing complexity understanding complexity is not the same as justifying it if i want to understand exactly what's going on in western china that has nothing to do with me morally approving it i just need to see it for what it is i need to be in touch with reality and that requires us being a little bit less emotionally involved in looking at the mirror and demanding that we are the prettiest of them all, that we are the best of them all. And rather just looking in the mirror and step by step looking at what is the policy that we've been implementing? Have we supported it? In what way? What are the consequences of that policy? Is that the path forward or not? That is much more productive than continuously just being blinded to our own behavior and instead obsessing with the evil nature of people and countries that we don't really understand. This seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on Simon Tisdale. If you have any questions, comments or regards, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. That is it from my side, Balder. Which closing quote did you pick for us today? Uh, today I chose a quote from a great thinker, young but up and coming, 
um, Dario Hashenstab, and I um, wrote down this quote just before we recorded the episode because they came right out of your mouth. <laughs> Dario says about Simon Tistel, he is a madman and needs to be stopped. <laughs>